So our sermon passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And the Gospel of Luke is probably my favorite gospel. I don't think there's, I think Bible books are kind of like kids, like you're not supposed to have a favorite one. At least it doesn't feel like I, I should have a favorite Bible book or a favorite gospel. But of all the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke's probably one of my And there's a couple of very interesting things about the Gospel of Luke, and this is one of them. The Gospel of Luke does not begin with the birth of Jesus. Now, I mean, it happens pretty quickly there at the beginning. It doesn't even begin with the birth of John the Baptist. That happens pretty quickly at the beginning, too. But if you think of it like a movie, the Gospel of Luke opens up, and the scene is an elderly priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. The Gospel of Luke begins with this one elderly priest. And as we're introduced to him, we're told a couple of things. We're told that he and his wife Elizabeth were childless. They had no children in their old age. And we're told that he is a priest. And in fact, we meet him on one of the remar most remarkable days of his entire career as a priest. Now, I think it gets lost on us because we, you know, we never worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Nobody has since 70 AD. But <laughs> we've never been there. We, never, we don't know the, the, the rituals and the processes. But we meet Zechariah, this elderly priest, on one of the most remarkable days of his entire career, when he had been selected to be the priest that burned the incense in the temple. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to us, but it would have been a very, very big deal for Zechariah, something that he would have prepared for his entire life. I've tried to think of a correlative thing. Um, it's almost like an Olympic athlete, not just being an Olympic athlete, but being one that carries the torch when <laughs> the Olympics come to his country. That's the idea. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing that's going to happen. By the time Zechariah lived, there were so many priests that they were divided up into 24 different divisions of priests. And they only served in the temple two weeks out of the year. They would go, they would actually stay at the temple, and it was almost like a hotel built into the temple where the priests would stay. And you had the chance, they would literally draw lots, which is almost like throwing dice, to decide who was going to be the priest that burned the incense at the altar. And there were so many at the time that a priest could only expect to maybe have this happen one time in his entire life. And it's something he would have learned the process. He would have memorized the words that he needed to know. He would have memorized all the actions and then prepping for this thing that might actually never happen. But when we meet him here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, he has been selected for this great honor. Now, in the temple, worship was not a passive thing at all, it was something that engaged all the senses. It wasn't like you went to the theater. The temple wasn't like the theater and you go and watch everything happen. You know, this is cool. No, he engaged all the senses. There were visual things you could watch. There were things you were going to hear. Like the, the priest literally had bells on his uh, on his vestments. And so when he would move, you would hear the bells ring. Like there were all kinds of things. The incense engaged your sense of smell. There were things to touch. It was just, it, your senses were bombarded in the temple. It was a profound experience that set it apart. You knew when you walked in the temple. It wasn't like walking in Walmart. It wasn't what they didn't have Walmart. It wasn't like walking into any other place in the entire world. 
But the burning of the incense wasn't just something to make these people smell nice. The symbolic meaning of the burning of the incense and why this was such an honor is because the incense represented the prayers of God's people going up to God. As the incense burned and the cloud and the smoke rose into the air, the people saw it, they smelled it, and they thought, our prayers are going up. They are heard by God. But the incense could only be burned by a priest. Someone who had been chosen to be a mediator between God and the people. And so the priest stood as a go-between. The priest would go and burn the incense. And because the priest burned the incense, the people could smell the incense and see the smoke rise. They would say, our prayers have been heard because they've been, in a sense, channeled through this priest. But the priest didn't just have that job. The priest also stood as a mediator to represent God to the people. And so after he burned the incense, what the priest would do was pronounce the benediction, the blessing on the people. He had taken their prayers and they were heard by God, and then he would pronounce the benediction that would tell them of God's intention for them. And the words of that benediction are the ones we hear every single week from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. And as worshipers heard that and as words rang in their ears, they knew that their prayers had been heard and God's intention for them had been declared through this priest. Through this priest. Now the reason I bring that up is because when we meet Zacharias, he's been selected to do this. And on this most momentous day, one of the most important days in his entire life, he is interrupted. He can't burn the incense. He can't pronounce the blessing. His biggest day, it's almost like he's been selected as the lead in the Broadway play and it's opening night and he's standing on the stage and he suddenly can't do his lines. He can't do what he's been chosen to do. An angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him that he and his wife have a son named John. And not just that they're going to have a baby, but that this baby is being chosen by God to be God's emissary. That in Jesus Christ, God is coming into this world. The king of God's kingdom is coming to bring the kingdom to earth. And that John is going to be the one that's sent ahead of Jesus to say, get ready. Get ready. God is breaking in. He's fulfilling his promises. His grace is coming here. And Zachariah, and this is announced, and he's flabbergasted, and he doesn't believe. He questions the angel's pronouncement, but then tells him, as a sign that it's God who's going to bring all of this about, that Zachariah will be unable to speak until his son is born. It seems odd to us. But then his, his voice is silenced until his son is born, so that he might see it as God who is doing it. Which creates, as I said, quite an issue for Zechariah. Why he's unable to pronounce the blessing on the people. Not only is he stopped from burning the incense by the angel who's there who tells him all of this, representing God's uh, the prayer of God's people to God, he can't pronounce the benediction, God's blessing on the people. So the most important day of his life has been interrupted, and he finds himself literally unable to speak until his son is born. And when his son is born, he doesn't go, God, why you the most important day in my life? That's not the first words that come out of his mouth. What he does is he breaks out 
the song. And that's the words of our passage that I'm about to read right now. We have the words that God had thrown in his heart as his son grew in his wife's womb. This is what God had formed in his heart in those nine months of silence. So let's read it together. Gospel of Luke, starting in verse, uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 67. This is God's word, the beautiful truth. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through the holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, both he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of us. For you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of its inner mercy of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine in those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this song that broke out from Zechariah's mouth that's been born in his heart in these months of silence and praise. We reflect on these words this morning. That you would show us Jesus. That you would cause us to join our song to Zechariah. That you would teach us what it means to know you, to be your people. I pray always in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a couple of things that I want to focus on as we reflect on the words that Zechariah is saying. The first is this. He has a profound conviction that whatever God is about to do is not a God in abstract out there sense. I kind of made this point last week. That he has taken away with this idea of a God who has come into this, who is coming into this world to be God with us. You know, there's always a danger when we talk about God that we treat him like a subject to be analyzed, almost like a history lesson. Earlier this year, I read a book on the Romanov family, which is the dynasty that ruled the Russian Empire for hundreds of years. And I love the book, it was very interesting. It analyzed the different rulers in that dynasty and the different approaches of leading the nation, their military exploits, the rise and fall of the empire. But every time I picked that book up, I was reading about something fascinating that had nothing to do with it. It was a historical thing. I just picked it up, read it. I'm not Russian. I've never read it. As far as I know, I haven't done the like 23 and anything, but I don't think I have any Russian uh, background at all. I don't, and when I closed the book, the Romanovs, the Romanovs stayed in the book. They didn't go with me. The Romanovs stayed safely tucked away into that book. They weren't people I was in a relationship with. They didn't care about me at all. They were a subject for me to analyze. And I think it's easy for us to treat God that way. We treat Him like a subject to talk about. We talk about God, not as if He's in uh, the room with us. Not as if he is the person present in us. We treat him like a subject to be analyzed. A historical subject. Maybe we read it out, but then to be closed up into a book and we go on to the rest of our lives with him safely tucked away in our Bibles. You know, I think Zechariah maybe felt something like that too. He was a priest, which was something that included a lot 
of repetition. It was the same ceremonies every day. It was the same words, the same saying. We see that, and we didn't read it here, but when the angel tells him that he and his wife would have a son, Zechariah, would have known the story of his father Abraham, his ancestor from way back. He would have known that story very, very well. Yet he responded by questioning the angel in front of him. He literally says to the angel, how can you be sure that what you're telling me is true? Since he and his wife were elder, how can this angel be sure they're going to have a child? If God had just done that with Abraham and Sarah, way back in Genesis, allowing them in their advanced stage to have a son, a son that God had told them would be the one through whom God would keep his promise to destroy the power of sin. And throughout the Old Testament, God had continued to uh, assure his people this promise and had fulfilled this promise in stages leading up to Jesus. All of this Zachariah would have known about, but when he has an angel literally in front of him, which I remind you is not a common experience. We know the Bible story, so sometimes it can feel like angels are popping up left and right. It's, it's not a common experience, <laughs> even in the Bible. Zechariah has a Bible, an angel in front of him. He can't believe that the same God that he knows from his Bible is at work and present right now. Not just active in the past. He struggles with the idea that God isn't just a subject to read about and appreciate, but he's a person who is active to keep his promises. So it's no surprise to me that when, uh, when what was born in Zechariah's heart and expressed in this song was him praising God for not just being a generic out there God, a subject to talk about, an abstract thing, but a God who has called a people to himself to be their God and they be his people. A God who isn't just an abstract thing, but one who acts in love and has bound himself in love to a people. And we can see this throughout the song. Zachariah expresses it. Verse 68, he speaks of who? The Lord God of Israel, who has come to his people. Verse 71, God has brought salvation not from generic enemies, but from what are enemies, delivering them from the hand of all who hate us. Or verse 72, in doing this, he has shown his mercy to our ancestors, and remembering his holy covenant, his promise to bless these people and make them a blessing to the entire world. Or verse 73, he's enabled us to serve him all of our days. And then look at verse 78, the tender mercy of what? Our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Verse 79, to guide our feet in the path of peace. This, our language, is not a God out there. Zechariah is talking about our God. For Zechariah, it's his God. God's not, not some abstract subject to consider. He's not even like a, philosophers would talk about the first mover. Aristotle talked about the first mover, that he needed a concept of God to ground his ideas of morality and justice in the world. That's not what Zechariah is talking about here. He's not talking about a far out abstract concept to undergird a philosophical system. He's talking about that person. His God. His God. God is not a subject of anyone else. This is a God who is not coming through on his promises. 
But it's not just a God who's breaking in, it's a God who's for us. Zechariah expresses this throughout the song in speaking about what God coming to his people means. He talks about redemption. The idea of redemption. And he uses different pictures to hit, hit the grandeur of what this redemption is. In verse 69, he uses the strange to us language of God raising up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. And in the ancient world, a horn was a symbol of strength. Okay, don't put horns on a bull. Bull goes to attack, they, they go to the horns. It's their, it's, their, it's their power. So a horn would be a symbol of strength, or even a, sometimes the idea of like a victorious trumpet. Back then, trumpets were brass instruments with vowels, and you know, they were animals that you turn into an instrument. But the idea was victory. Especially victory in the Old Testament, you see horn, victory over oppressors. And Zechariah speaks of God's redemption as a victory over what? Our enemies. But what does he mean? What is our enemies? Is it just uh, Zechariah having an idea of like, I don't like that guy, I don't like that woman, God's going to kick them off for me? No. <laughs> Being a little facetious here. No, that's not what he's talking about. What does he mean? He doesn't just mean political enemies. Though there's a sense that that's true, we sing about it in the uh, Holy Life. In the name of Jesus, eventually, where all this is leading, in the name of Jesus, all oppression will cease. God will do that. That's why when it talks about final judgment in Scripture, it's not God visiting to like, squash us because we say a cuss word when we bump our toe on the couch in the middle of the night. That's not the idea. It's God coming to this earth and all that abuse their power. To put him and oppress others? All that abuse of uh, force and violence to squash others? All oppressors? Well, answer. The kingdoms of this world will not stand, no matter how powerful they are. The kingdom of our Lord and his Christ will stand forever. God is a God of justice. And all who use power to oppress and violence, and use violence against others will be brought down and answer to God one day. But it doesn't just mean that when it speaks of enemies. We discover a number of enemies in Scripture. The Bible speaks in particular about Satan, powers of darkness, who are against the human pride, who are against God's plan to seek to destroy. Now, I'm not talking about exorcists. When we think of demons or the devil, um, I think a lot of times our concepts of what that could be are more uh, defined by Hollywood and horror movie industry than anything else. They're not. That's not what I'm talking about. The scripture does point us to the fact there are spiritual powers in this world of darkness that are against God's plan, that are against human thrive, that are against the God of love. But what Zechariah sings here, these are not enemies to be terrified of, cowardly, even in their mystery, even in the mystery of this power of darkness. Because God is their enemies that He is defeating. The Bible also speaks of uh, fear as an enemy to be overcome. The book of Hebrews talks about it. fear of death. Fear of death is, it, it speaks of fear of death as a slave master of humanity. As Zechariah sings in this song of fear of being overcome, us being enabled because God is at work to serve Him without fear. Bible, it speaks of sin as an enemy, and that's an obvious one. The sin of our own heart, the selfishness that we act out of, the 
the sin that we see at work in our entire world as an enemy, it also speaks of, strangely, because of who we are, the law of God as an enemy. Not because the law is bad, but because that standard is something we cannot meet on The good news of the gospel is this, and the reason I'm talking about these enemies is that whoever the enemies of our hearts may be, or the enemies of us, no matter how powerful they may seem, they cannot stand, simply cannot stand against Jesus. They cannot stand against God. If God be for us, who can be against us? The answer is no. And in Jesus Christ coming into this world, God has declared himself as a God for us. A God with us and a God for us. And if God is our God, and we are his people, then sin or fear or Satan or the combined powers, all the darkness in the entire universe, and the death of sin, and the human heart cannot stand in the way of his love for us. It cannot. That's what Zechariah speaks of. Our sins are mighty, verse 72, God shows mercy. Our sins are too big for us, verse 77, God will forgive our sins. Our enemies are big, verse 71, God will deliver us from our enemies. Our fears are big, verse 74, he will enable us to serve him without fear. We may feel like we're forgotten. Verse 17, God will not forget His covenant promises. We cannot see holiness or righteousness in ourselves. Look at verse 75. God will give us that. We walk in darkness. God will shine His light in us. This song reveals a man, Zechariah, whose heart has been captured by this idea that not only is God not far out there, but He is a God with us who is at work to do what we cannot. This doesn't just stop us after life. Remember, he's singing this song about six months before Jesus is even born. Zechariah is looking at his son, who will later be called John the Baptizer, who's being sent ahead of Jesus as an emissary announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. But this conviction that God is not a subject to study, but a person who loves us, who calls us to be loved by him, a person who is active in his love for us, this song is meant to be ours as well. Because on the other side of Jesus, we've seen what Zechariah in his earthly life never saw. Zechariah was elderly by the time that his son was born. And so the fruition of his son's ministry he didn't see. The life of Jesus he did not see. But still he said. Zechariah never saw the extent to which God would go to make us his people and to secure that. I think he knew hints of it or he wouldn't have broken out the song here. But he didn't see it. But we, on the other side, we see a God who takes some flesh to be one of us. To bring us to himself. Who identifies with us forever that we might be identified with him forever. That we will never stand apart from a God who has joined himself and even bound himself to us. Zechariah didn't see the experience of Jesus suffering in his crucifixion. The creator literally being killed by his creation. He didn't see the experience of Jesus suffering the wrath of his sin. He didn't see as well the resurrection from the dead, which became the womb of a new creation, 
He didn't hear the promise of all things being made But this morning, friend, we can sing with that bride. We can have this song in our heart because we know that in Jesus we have met this God who is our, uh, our Emmanuel. Matthew 1 talks about God with us. And in Jesus we can know that He is God with us, never apart from us again, never God without us. God with us and God for us. As I mentioned at the beginning, when the angel appeared to Zechariah, it was on one of the biggest days of his life. It interrupted this most important day and kept him from doing his duties as a priest. He couldn't burn the incense. He could not pronounce the benediction. And I'm sure that was embarrassing. Think about it. I'm sure that was profoundly embarrassing. He probably laughed at it. He probably became the, the like cautionary tale of the year Zechariah got picked and he came out and he was like, I can't, he couldn't even speak, he couldn't do the thing. But surprisingly, when his mouth opens at the birth of his son, Zechariah doesn't say a word about that. Why? Not because it wasn't embarrassing. It probably was. Zechariah probably had some shame about what everyone else would have seen as a failure. But when his mouth opens and he sings this song, I think it's because he knew somehow that a better priest was on the way. Think for a moment how delicate the Old Testament priesthood, priesthood feels. There were so many steps. If you've ever read through the book of Leviticus and sections of the book of Numbers, there were so many steps and everything that had to be that had to be done. So many words that had to be precisely said. And they had to be done in the right order and in the right way. And on top of that, not only was it complicated in a sense with lots of steps, the priest wasn't just someone representing sinners before God, the priest was a sinner too. And so what if he wound up with a bad priest? There was a sense where it had to feel a little bit insecure. Sacrifices, even when they were done right, had to be done every day, over and over. And because people always sinned, there always needed to be more, and it never ran. But with Jesus, with the arrival of Jesus, we not only get a good priest who can do some ceremonies correctly, we get a perfect high priest as we were reading about in our assurance of prayer from Hebrews 7. One not stained with his own sin. One who doesn't need to keep offering sacrifices over and over as if the sin that we commit is stronger than the sacrifice for sin. But one who has dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. And so for Zechariah, the frustrations of his big day wasn't ashamed of him. For him, it was an opening of his eyes to see more than just the his personal honor of burning some incense and pronouncing a blessing. In a sense, the, the horizons of his heart were expanding. Because in all of this, his eyes were open to see others. I mentioned earlier that he had gained this firm conviction of God for him, but that's not quite right. Because those are not the words he uses in that song. He doesn't say me. He doesn't say I. He says us. 
He says, are. His vision of what God is doing is not just a breaking in for Zechariah, or even for Zechariah and Elizabeth and his future son, John. John has just arrived. God has broken in and has opened his eyes to see even more children. Our God has come to us to bring us salvation. I think Zechariah realizes here that him being unable to offer prayers means that a better priest is here who can truly assure God's people that they are heard. I think Zechariah also realizes that him being unable to pronounce the blessing, the benediction on the people, means that a better priest is here who can truly assure God's people of his blessing and intentions for them. And in fact, if you have your Bible on you, you can flip to the last chapter of Luke's Gospel. The very last action that Jesus takes in the Gospel of Luke is lifting up his hands to bless his disciples. The action that was interrupted in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah being unable to bless the people gathered there to worship is fulfilled with Jesus. Victorious over death, who lifts his hands, still scarred, he lifts his hands to pronounce a blessing upon his disciples. Friends, this is the God we serve. This is the God who has called us to himself. And so this morning, don't expect when you go home today or when you're at work and even the biggest day of your life that an angel's going to pop up and tell you some stuff and you're going to be silent for nine months. That's not, I'm not saying let's find ourselves in Zechariah in this pathway exactly how this fleshes out is going to be yours. Uh, don't expect that. That's probably what you're But we can find our purpose in God and all things in Him. And as we see uh, what was born in Zechariah's Zacharias, heart, we can have a firm conviction in our own hearts that God's not a subject, an abstract out there, but He is God with us and God for us. And so, when we hear the benediction that I'll pronounce in just a little while, we don't hear that as a maybe. We don't hear that as a possibility. We hear it as a sure thing. In fact, we can almost change the tense. Not just uh, the Lord bless you and keep you, but a rejoice for in Jesus the Lord has blessed you and now keeps you. A rejoice to the, for in Jesus the Lord has made his face to shine on us and is gracious to us. A rejoicing because in Jesus the Lord has turned his face toward us and he is giving us his.